Well, in our services, we've been studying the important doctrines of Scripture, the important teachings of the Christian faith, and we've been using as our guide the Belgian Confession, which is one of the doctrinal standards of our church. We require all our leaders to adhere to this doctrinal standard. It was produced at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and uh, we're going to be looking at a particular article that we find in this confessional statement. It's Article 5 on the authority of Scripture, and I'm going to read this statement for you, and this is going to be the subject that we're going to consider tonight. We receive all these books, the 66 books of the Bible, and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. We believe without any doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they contain the evidence of this in themselves, for even the blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. And then our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John. If you have Bibles, I invite you to read with me, or else you can read the text as it is projected above and behind me. John chapter 10, a famous chapter in John's Gospel where Jesus identifies himself as the Good Shepherd. And we're going to see how these verses have relevance for this question of how the Bible came to be. John chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 25 to verse 30. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. For many centuries in many parts of the world, People who knew anything about religion knew only about the religion that was practiced in their specific locale. And so Buddhists in Cambodia knew only of Buddhism. Hindus in India knew only about Hinduism. Christians in Europe knew only about Christianity. I think you will agree with me tonight that we live in an entirely different world. We are familiar with all the world religions. My sons are more familiar with world religions than I was when I was their age. They know something about Buddhism, something about Hinduism, something about Islam, something about Judaism, and of course, a lot about Christianity because they were raised in a Christian home. And it's become difficult and challenging for some youth to navigate their way through a world 
in which there are so many religions. And it's become very popular for young people to have this view that all world religions essentially teach the same thing. And that all of these world religions simply have a different husk. But if you get to the root of it, they're all teaching the same thing. Young people know that their parents don't hold this view, but they believe they have insight that their parents don't have. And so it's important for us to wrestle with this question of the plurality of religions, among which Christianity seems like just one among many. Now, if you're familiar with these world religions, you know that almost all of them have sacred texts. That wouldn't be true of Buddhism, but it would be true of Hinduism, the Vedas, it would be true of Islam, the Quran, and of course Christianity has the Bible. Everybody is claiming that these sacred texts are inspired by God, and yet they all can't be inspired by God because they all teach very different things. They all contradict each other at very important points. And so tonight we want to really wrestle with the question, why do we embrace the Bible as the Word of God and not the Quran and not the Vedas? And how was it that the Bible came about? We're kind of revisiting, although from a different vantage point, the question, how can the Bible be trusted? Now, if you study how Christians in the past have answered this particular question, you will discover that in many cases they look to uh, standards and criteria outside of the Bible to kind of prove the Bible's authenticity and truth. So you get a, a popular version of this when people uh, claim to have discovered as what happens, it seems, every 10 or 20 years, they claim to discover the remains of Noah's Ark. You ever remember reading articles in the newspaper? Like I said, this seems to happen about every 20 years. Christians claim to have found the remains of Noah's Ark, and they say, this now proves that the Bible is true. The claims of the Bible are verified by history and by archaeology. But you have more sophisticated attempts to prove that the Bible's claims are true. You have Christians who argue that the Bible uh, conveys one unified message across Old Testament and New Testament. It is a wonderful book that ought to convince us that it is from God. <clears throat> now, I think you can uh, agree with me that if that were the criterion for determining whether it's a book from God, there could be many other books that could be considered books from God as well. You will find other books containing historical records that can be verified by archaeology and history. You can find other books that have a unifying message, a very consistent message. So I think we have to be cautious about those approaches. There is one uh, variant of, of this particular argument that has a little more credibility, and it is this, that we ought to accept the books of the New Testament in particular because of what is called apostolicity, namely that all the writers of the New Testament were either apostles or at least close companions of the apostles. 
And that ought to be the reason why we accept the 27 books of the New Testament. And I'm going to limit my remarks tonight especially to the books of the New Testament. Now, there, are, there is a problem with an approach like this. Uh, what if we were to, to discover that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter that we haven't yet had access to, uh, but a letter that is discovered? Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the missing letter to the Corinthians, would that then be added to the Bible? A more substantial problem with, with these approaches is where in the Bible does it say that this is the criteria for whether we accept books as canonical, as belonging to Holy Scripture? Uh, now, the Roman Catholics, our Roman Catholic friends, have responded to this issue in an entirely different way, which for them at least simplifies things. And they've argued that the church has the power and the authority to define what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't belong in the Bible. The Spirit of God was at work in the church to make infallible pronouncements to say these 27 books belong in the Bible and no other books. And Protestants have always found that argument to be difficult to swallow because we know and rightly so, that the church is not an infallible institution and therefore cannot make infallible pronouncements. The church is fallible and broken, and even its best decisions can be guilty of sin. I'm also fond in this regard of something that the theologian J.I. Packer said. He said, the church no more... I've got to look at the exact quotation... The church no more gave us the canon of Scripture than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. Sir Isaac Newton, you see, didn't create gravity, but simply recognized that gravity exists. And that's the role that the church has, and we'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. The church does not create the canon, as our Roman Catholic friends say. Rather, the church recognizes the canon as Newton recognized the force of gravity. So tonight we're going to see how Protestants have addressed this in a completely different way. And what Protestant theologians have said is that Scripture authenticates itself. And I have a couple of quotations here from prominent theologians. First John Calvin, you know, perhaps the greatest of the Protestant reformers. God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Herman Bavinck, probably the greatest Reformed theologian of the 20th century, said, Scripture's authority with respect to itself depends on Scripture. Here's how the argument goes. I wonder what you think of it. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God because God tells us so in the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God because God tells us so in the Bible. Now, some of you here are astute thinkers, and you say, hold on a minute, Pastor Bill, that is a circular argument. And it is. But I, what I want to demonstrate tonight is that circular arguments are sometimes legitimate, 
and in some cases even necessary. And this is a point that is not disputed even by secular philosophers. The reasoning goes like this. When it comes to arguing for something of ultimate and fundamental importance, one must employ a circular argument. So, for example, a rationalist will say he's a rationalist because it's reasonable. A naturalist will say he's a naturalist because it's natural. If a rationalist says he's a rationalist because it's natural, he's not a rationalist, but a naturalist. If a naturalist says he's a naturalist because it's reasonable, he's not a naturalist, but a rationalist. Do you get how that works? And if we say the Bible is the word of God because it's reasonable, we're rationalists. And if we say the Bible must be true because it's proved by archaeology, we've made archaeology a standard higher than the Bible itself. We have no higher authority to which to appeal than the Bible itself. And so the highest authority that we can appeal to defend that the Bible is the Word of God is the Word of God itself. Now, this is not a convincing argument. Everyone recognizes it. But it's a legitimate argument. It's what philosophers call a warranted argument. Scripture authenticates itself. This is what Protestants believe. I want to take this in a slightly different direction, and I want to say that all of that's true, but the Scripture itself gives us some criteria for recognizing you know, the marks of a canonical Bible. And so we're going to work our way through this outline tonight. We'll say something first about access to the canonical books, secondly, something about criteria for the canonical books, and then thirdly, something about the recognition of the canonical books. First of all, access to the canonical books. If the sheep are to respond to the shepherd's voice, they must have access to that voice. Does that make sense? If the sheep are to respond to the shepherd's voice, they must have access to that voice. The sheep cannot respond to a voice they don't know of. Now this is an important point because people will sometimes bring up the phenomena of lost books. We know from 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. And so sometimes people make the point, well, the canon of Scripture is bigger than the 27 books of the New Testament and includes what they call some lost books. And I think we can easily refute that argument and we should deny it by saying we can only believe what we have. The church is reliably led in the providence of God to some books and not to others. Let's move on to um, the next point, the criteria for the canonical books. Now, by the way, uh, having established the first point that books that we don't know of can't be part of the canon, that doesn't exclude all kinds of books that we do have access to. And there were letters that were written in the first century, like First Clement, and, and important books in the second century, like the Shepherd of Hermas, which theoretically still could be part of the canon. That's why we need to probe this a little bit deeper. Criteria for the canonical book. The scriptures itself give 
criteria for the canonical books. We believe on the, on the basis of Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. And because God created the world, we should expect that the world will demonstrate some divine qualities, right? If God is the creator of the world, we should expect that the world would reveal some of his characteristics. We should have the same expectation of the Bible. If we affirm, as we do, that God is the author of Scripture, we should expect to find in Scripture divine qualities, and this is what we do. And theologians will often write about the beauty of Scripture. And when theologians write about the beauty of Scripture, they're not uh, referring necessarily to literary beauty, because Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 2 that he did not write with persuasive words or, or sophistry or excellent um, sentences. But rather, we are saying that the Word has spiritual beauty. And for our purposes tonight, we can just say the Word brings good news, good news that is not found in any world religion. Because every world religion is about finding a way to meet with God, finding a way to be approved by God, finding a way into the afterlife, finding a way into nirvana, whatever it is. And in Buddhism and Hinduism, for example, you have the message of karma, right? What comes around goes around, and you have to live in a certain way so you don't get something back that you don't want, or you have to live in a certain way to break the cycle of karma and get to nirvana. And in the Bible, we get this very clear message of good news in the person of Jesus. And we're told that Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, and he died the death we were supposed to die. It's a beautiful spiritual message that we say, yeah, this is something God would say. We could uh, refer in this connection to other attributes. The unified message of the Bible, the Belgic Confession refers to this. You know, what is promised in one part is fulfilled in, in another. I was talking to Tim Nine earlier this week. I said, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? He says, well, I look at it as an artist. And the Bible, to me, seems like a very artistic work, you know, with certain motifs that go throughout the entire scriptures, but repeat in different ways, and it has this musical quality to it, and it's an amazing thing. I've been studying the Bible professionally, I don't know if that's the right word, for many years, and I'm constantly floored by the beauty of Scripture and how something in one part of Scripture coheres with something in another that I didn't initially recognize. You could argue that the Bible, because it is from God, ought to have divine qualities, and that means that the Bible ought to have a transforming effect on people, ought to be compelling in a certain way that leads them to change their lives. This is exactly what we find. There are people who are converted simply by reading the Bible. I heard a story not so long ago of a man who was reading through the Psalms. By the time he got to Psalm 51, he got down on his knees, acknowledged he was a sinner, embraced a belief in God. I know of another story of a New Testament scholar who became a Christian just by reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But throughout world history and across the globe, you've had preachers preaching the gospel, this word, and people's lives have been transformed because of it. This is what we should expect. If a word is from God, we should expect it to have a kind of power that only God could have to change certain lives. 
Well, let's move on to the second quality, reception. The canon of Scripture elicits a certain response from the church. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice and they follow me. If it is, in fact, the Word of God, the sheep are going to recognize it as the Word of God and they're going to embrace it. And this is, of course, what has happened in church history. The church has recognized that these books belong to the canon of Scripture. Our Roman Catholic friends have a slightly different viewpoint on this. They're fond of citing 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, which talks about the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. And so they say, well, the canon didn't create the church. The church created the canon. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And to my Roman Catholic friends, I would say, well, that's not the only thing that the Bible teaches. Paul teaches in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The uh, church rests in that text on an apostolic message. And of course, I've, I've, I quote uh, John Stott periodically as a nice way of bringing these two things together. He says that the church depends on the truth for its existence and the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. The church rests on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the truth rests on the church for it to be proclaimed throughout the world. Well, let's move on to the third of the criteria, origin. And here we are making the point that many have made before, but we're making it because the Bible makes it, that books in the Bible, in order to be canonical, must be apostolic. They must be written by apostles or by close companions of the apostles, precisely because of what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. The church rests on the foundation of apostles and prophets. And so all of the New Testament books are written by apostles or by close companions of the apostles. Can you think of a book written by someone who's not an apostle? Sure, Luke, Mark. And yet these are identified by the apostles themselves as close companions. So they all belong to this very specific apostolic age that the Bible identifies as the foundation of the church. And if we recognize that as criterion that the Bible itself gives, that eliminates almost every other book. There are only a couple of other epistles that belong to that apostolic age, and even there it's questionable. First Clement would be an example because it's, it was uh, published, they think, in the year A.D. 96, I believe. If all of this is true, and you have all of this criteria, shouldn't everybody recognize that the Bible is the Word of God? Shouldn't everyone recognize that the 27 books of the New Testament belong in the New Testament as the Word of God? If, if these uh, epistles and gospels reveal divine beauty, shouldn't everyone see it? Well, the problem here is the problem of sin. And sin darkens our mind so that we cannot see sometimes what's obvious. And so what is necessary is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. My sheep hear my voice, but my sheep 
are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But notice we're not saying it's just blind faith that the Spirit gives us. It's the Spirit leads us to recognize that the criteria that the Bible itself gives for canonicity is valid. I want to quote in this connection, and I'm drawing to a conclusion here, something we read in 1 Corinthians 2. And the idea here is that the Bible is inspired by the Spirit, and the Spirit in the believer, the Spirit in the sheep, recognizes the writings that he inspired. Listen to what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him, these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. Now, read on. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. The Spirit within you is going to recognize the work that the Spirit himself produced. That's what we mean when we talk about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. They have to have access to his voice. And when they have access to his voice, they follow him. They recognize that voice as authoritative. But who is that good shepherd? Let's conclude with this. Didn't I already say that once? Let's conclude. We're really going to conclude with this. What else is said in John chapter 10? So important for us to see. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. In the end, it's not simply a matter, is it? Of knowing that this is the voice of the good shepherd. It's knowing what the good shepherd did for his sheep. And the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. That's you and that's me. Laid down his life so that we might have life tonight. So long as we go to him, hearing his voice and surrendering our lives to him. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you that you've given us a good shepherd in the person of Jesus and that through your providential ordering of the world, you have ensured 
that we, the sheep, would have access to the voice of the Good Shepherd so that we might learn what the Good Shepherd has done for us, giving up his life for us, and so that we might learn what it means to follow him as his sheep. We pray that in this new week, you would help us to be good sheep of the Good Shepherd, recognizing the Good Shepherd for who he is, entrusting ourselves to him, and living in line with what he taught us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.